Chris Desser, welcome to the new school. Thank you. My pleasure. As I prepared for this call, and I looked at the many things that you've done and uh, the many years that we've known each other, I was reflecting on the extraordinary range of things you've been involved with. You are a fellow of the Tamales Bay Institute, which is a think tank focused on developing the concept of the commons as an overarching analytical structure. You served on the California Coastal Commission and the San Francisco Commission for the Environment. In 2003, you co-founded Women's Voices, Women's Vote, and you were the director of the Funders Working Group on New Technologies, the co-editor of Living with the Genie, Technology and the Quest for Human Mastery, and you've served on many boards, including the Rockwood Leadership Program, Patagonia, Mother Jones Magazine, and Rainforest Action Network. And I wanted to ask you, simply as a starting place, what ties all this together for you? Well, I think that a lot of people uh, who are aware of, of what I've done think that I have a rather disparate or checkered career. But in fact, to me, it's all of a piece, because what motivates me most in the world is helping to create and preserve the opportunities for everybody in it to realize their deepest selves. And I think that that requires at least two things. Uh, one is an intact natural environment for many, many reasons. It's an inspirational place to be, but it also is very tangible evidence of our interconnectedness and interdependence. And the other that is necessary is a political environment in which freedom and, and personal liberty is a very valued and protected um, quality. As I bicycled out to Commonweal this morning to do this conversation, I kept uh, thinking about the conversation. I kept coming back to the title of a book by Mary Catherine Bateson called Composing a Life. I imagine you're familiar with the book. I am, yes. And in that book, um, uh, Bateson talks about the fact that women more than men in our culture seem to have the opportunity to compose a life in a richer way, that there are more, what my mother used to say, there are more ways to succeed as a woman than there are as a man, that there is permission uh, to do a wider range of things. Uh, Bateson also uh, said that change is an improvisatory process, that it, uh, that change takes place with many unexpected turns, and that what we, may what we accomplish may not be apparent to us until much later. And I wondered, as you look at the work you have done, uh, is this observation that you just made about the two uh, primary uh, values for you something that you had a sense of at the beginning, or is, is it something that emerged as you look back on what you've done thus far? That's an interesting question, which I haven't really considered before. So, um, so this will be a very improvisational response. I I grew up in a in a very privileged and fortunate circumstance, in part because of growing up in this country, in part because I grew up at the edge of this country in Los Angeles, you know, the sort of western edge of the United States, which I think, and I think that the consciousness of those of us who live out here is a very open and broad consciousness, different from other places. And I think that because inherent in my upbringing um, were these qualities, 
I hadn't, I took it for granted. And as I have aged and read more and, and, and done more with my life, I think I have been more intentional about the choices that I have made and about the conditions that have enabled me to make those choices. Mm-hmm. Yes, and in, in uh, composing a life, uh, Bateson has three wonderful meanings of uh, what it means to compose a life. And the first of those is the artistic process, that an artist takes ingredients that may appear incompatible and works them into a whole that is workable and perhaps even aesthetically pleasing and perhaps even beautiful, so that when we get up in the morning, we're making decisions uh, in a way we're creating our life as a work of art. And then the second meaning is to compose as in the sense of music, something that happens over time and looking at the changes in our lives, the discontinuities, transitions, and growth. And the third and last meaning has to do with the stories that we compose about our lives, the stories we tell ourselves and others as a way of interpreting our experience. So I just, I just found myself very struck at this sort of conjunction of thinking about your life and these observations of uh, Bateson's. And I wondered whether any of those meanings of composing a life, whether the artistic one of uh, composing your life actively, the, the musical one of changes over time, or the sense in which we have access to different stories about our lives, uh, do those have resonance for you? In ways they do, in ways they don't. I have been, I would like to consider myself an artistic person, and I, there, I have had many artistic expressions per se in my life, whether it has to do with drawing or painting or organizing a gathering like Living with the Genie, which you referenced, which was what some would call a conference, but I think was a very unusual experience for people who were there. So I have an, in, I have an artistic intention as I go about specific projects, I would say. But I don't have an overarching artistic intention in the sense that I'm living a life within some pre-existing idea or intention of what I want it to look like. And so in that sense, perhaps the music analogy is a better one because it, it unfolds in concert, so to speak. Not always, but, but if, if, if you use a, a symphony as an example, it's unfolding within a context in which many elements are playing a part. In terms of the stories, I think that that's an after-the-fact organizing of information. In fact, I think that all of what Bateson is talking about there is kind of an after-the-fact organizing of information. And I wonder if what she says is really true, mm-hmm. even for her. Well, one of the qualities I think you and I both have is that we somehow uh, instinctively see the other side of almost any possibility that is put forward. And that's why I've always had a sense of fellowship with you, that uh, I'm always asking myself that same question, is it true? Uh, one of the uh, One of the aspects of your life that we haven't mentioned is uh, your deep engagement with meditation. In fact, uh, one of the uh, uh, memories I have of you is meeting you at Vicedos Mountain Refuge, which you were part of co-founding a, a meditation center for people engaged with social action. And you've been really deeply engaged with 
insight meditation for um, some period of time. What has that experience been like for you? How has it changed your life, if at all? What have you learned from it? That first experience at Vallecitos where we were meditating together was a world-rocking experience for me. I had no idea of the profundity of the meditative experience. And I would say that that, being at Vallecitos that time, um, provided for me a, a, a wholly different context in which to experience my life. And that is because although I have always been aware of this interdependence and interconnectedness because of my experience in the natural world, when I was sitting quietly and having that experience arise within me, it was, for me, very profound and amazing. And I have carried that with me ever since. I have had a regular meditation practice ever since, done a lot of um, retreats like that, one from from 10 days to, to many months. And I was so struck by that experience that I actually spent the next seven years doing meditation more than anything else. And it was interesting to see the consequence that that had for my work in the world in both a positive and perhaps a not-so-positive way. Could you say more about both the positive and the not-so-positive ways? Well, the not-so-positive ways, which is, uh, can be said rather simply, is that it wasn't, it's not something that a lot of people in the active, activist world are very familiar with. And I, at the time, was on two boards. Um, and because I took some time away, they were not interested in my continuing to participate in the board over time which I found amazing because I think that I probably could have come back, I know that I could have come back to participate even more meaningfully and probably valuably than I had before. In terms of my larger work in the world, I go back to what I had said earlier. It enabled me to deeply know and understand the one-piecedness, so to speak, of the work that I do. And... For me, meditation practice, this is is not exactly an appropriate analogy to use for the experience, but it it creates a place for me of rock-bottom truth, which isn't to say that true things are always unfolding in the process, but it is a place where one just knows. And that knowing is a very... It's not merely that it's a comforting place to be. It's an essential place to be as you move forward in the world. And now I'm going to come back to one of the things you said about Mary Catherine Bateson. Perhaps with some expectation that what you do is going to make a difference or that you're going to see the difference. But in fact, you may never see the difference. And that what matters, and this is a critical thing for meditation practice or or the way Buddhist meditation is taught, is your intention. And... I think that that rock-bottom truth is, for me, the place of clarity of intent. Who are the teachers of meditation who have been most useful to you? Joseph Goldstein is who I first sat with, 
and who I have sat with many times since, and he has been a very, very important teacher for me. And he is a teacher of insight meditation. Could you say a little more about that school or system of meditation? Insight meditation, also known as Vipassana meditation, is translated as mindfulness practice. It has its roots in Theravadan Buddhism, which is the earliest, in a way, fundamentalist Buddhism. But I think that it has evolved and changed somewhat as we practice it in the West at this time. And it's very simple practice, as you know, simple to explain, hard to do, of sitting with yourself and just noticing with very careful attention what is arising in every moment and noticing when you stop noticing what's arising in every moment and coming coming back to it. What is your meditation practice like on a daily or weekly basis? I just sit. I would say that I sit for some period of time every day, but it can be under unusual circumstances. I might be sitting at my desk and then just decide that I'm going to drop into a place of noticing my breath to begin with for 10 or 15 minutes. And I may do that several times a day. And that's how I practice on a regular basis. Then I frequently do meditation retreats of 10 days or more. I'm going to do two this year, which entail meditation, either sitting or walking meditation all day long. And how would you say these uh, years of uh, a strong meditation practice have affected you internally beyond this relationship to what you call rock-bottom truth? How has it affected how you are in the world as you move through the world every day? Well, I suppose that you and others who have known me over a period of years could respond to that question uh, better than I can. I would like to believe that it's made me a little less reactive, a little less attached, that it has given me a broader and bigger picture of uh, how I work in the world and, and whether and how it matters. And I think, and this may be the most important, and it's an echo of what I said earlier, it's that I can only control what I'm doing in every moment. I can only control what my intention is in every moment. And although I think it's important if you're a smart and analytical person who is wanting to affect some kind of political change in the world to have an idea of what kind of change you want to bring about, the fact is you cannot be so attached to bringing about that change because, as I said, you may never know whether you're part of a change or not. But you can be part of that change internally as you act in accordance with that, as you manifest an intention in accordance with that in every moment. You probably know the wonderful quote from Arnold Toynbee, the great uh, philosopher of civilizations, who said that he thought that the greatest uh, event of the 20th century would turn out to be uh, what happened when the Dharma came to the West. 
And uh, I think one could argue that Toynbee did not fully recognize something else that you've been very involved with, which is the transformational impact of new technologies on human health and the natural world. And I would actually argue that that is a uh, that will be the real signature of the 20th century, as Pete Myers and others have suggested, that humanity becoming a a major force on the global uh, biological systems. But going back to Toynbee, this movement of the Dharma to the West, which both of us have uh, really witnessed and to some degree participated in, in that, as it has turned out, insight meditation or Vipassana meditation has turned out to be one of the most influential schools of uh, contemplative practice in the West. I would say along with Zen practice and, and uh, perhaps some others. Is that an observation that you would agree with or would you see it differently? Well, I, I don't have much experience with Zen. I do have a fair amount of experience with Tibetan practice, uh, Zogchen, which is not dissimilar, uh, actually, to Vipassana. And that's been powerfully important to me as well. But I think to name it, as a dharma or buddhism is problematic because i think that what one experiences and what one learns through meditation practice is not something that's been cornered by the buddhists they just have been very skillful in developing technology so to speak to get in touch with it but what is so profound about what one learns in my experience in meditation, is that, as I say, it's just kind of fundamental truth, and you can come at that any number of ways. A book that I've read recently, which I have been much, much taken of, is called uh, Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees, which is by Lawrence Wechsler, but it's conversations with Robert Irwin, who's, I think, a very wonderful artist. And Robert Irwin, through his work, came to just the things that I'm talking about and decided to lead his life in a way that followed those threads rather than in a way that might seek fame. This kind of comes back again to what Mary Catherine Bateson said about um, whether, we, whether we are recognized for what we accomplish or whether we even see what we accomplish. So I think that Buddhist practice is just one way and a powerful way, and it has worked well for me, to come to a place that one can arrive at through many other kinds of practices. And Robert Irwin, for example, did through the way that he did art. Well, I, I deeply agree with what you just said. Uh, and it takes us to uh, another point in, in the conversation. Do you see these practices, uh, this movement toward rock-bottom truth through any wide range of different uh, approaches. Do you see these as essentially individual accomplishments, uh, or do you believe that uh, there may be a movement of human consciousness in the country, uh, around the world, that, that actually is moving uh, all of us, or a su- sufficiently significant number of us to affect the whole, uh, toward another level of awareness? I would say that both and. It's both individual and it is uh, cultural and social 
because individuals are what constitute a social and cultural fabric. And first I want to clarify one thing. That's why the rock-bottom truth is not the best way to describe what I'm talking about because it suggests an unchanging thing with a capital T. And that is not what I mean. What I mean by that truth is something that, again, gets talked about in, in, in Buddhism, which is um, ridding, ridding the obscurations that impair the ability to see clearly. So, so ridding a window, say, of some soot that doesn't allow you to see through it clearly. So when I talk about truth, I guess I'm really, this rock-bottom truth, I'm really talking about seeing clearly. And, in fact, I do think that we are moving globally towards a, towards a ever more integrative way of thinking about things. And you and I have discussed Ken Wilber in the past and also a man named John Gebzer, who wrote a book called The Ever-Present Origin, from which much of Ken Wilber's work follows. And what Gebzer has done is trace what he calls structures of consciousness from the, from the magical to what he would now call the integral, and considers those structures of consciousness as the dominant, though not the exclusive, ways that people in particular periods are thinking about things. And these structures of consciousness are reflected in basically all human manifestation. And I think that right now we are in a period of moving from a from a modern uh, kind of post-Newtonian but still rather polar way of thinking as a dominant structure of consciousness to an integrative structure of consciousness, which is not binary in that sense, but which is able to comprehend many threads of things all at once, which simply stated, again, comes back to what I was speaking of earlier, it understands interconnectedness in a very uh, fundamental and important way. I believe Jean Gebser was born in Germany in about 1929 and died in 1973. He was a student of the transformation of consciousness, a linguist and a poet. And he believed that uh, out of the chaos of Europe in 1914 to 1949, that a new consciousness was taking shape in language and literature and art and in science. And as you mentioned, uh, he had five stages of consciousness, archaic, magic, mythical, mental, and integral. And as you also mentioned, uh, Ken Wilber uh, is one of the uh, representatives of uh, integral thought. Um, but there are many other representatives, uh, 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 of which uh, Gebser is one. And uh, before we move on specifically to Ken Wilber, I, I just want to focus in because I think it may be of real significance, Chris, as we think out the future of the new school's work, uh, to think about the exploration of integral thought. And I just want to ask, uh, as you have looked at integral thought, uh, how have you understood it? What thinkers other than Gene Gebser have been important to you? And, and can you say more about what movement from modernism or postmodernism into integral thought actually means for individual consciousness and for the movement of consciousness as a whole? That's a big question. Um, in terms of thinkers, whether they would label themselves as integral thinkers or not, people who I think represent this way of thinking, just to name a few, and who've been 
very important the way that I think about things are uh, the philosopher Richard Rorty, the philosopher and historian Isaiah Berlin, the writer John Berger, the philosopher and legal thinker Rawls, just to name a few. But in addition to thinkers, and in a way, in a more interesting way, I think that there are a lot of people out there that are practicing what they do in this integral way, even though, again, they would not call it that. For example, a young architect named Teddy Cruz, who works in Tijuana and has been rethinking American suburbs with ideas that he has gleaned from from the, the, the patchwork of shanty towns in Tijuana, as, as he states, a, a, an antidote to, the, to gated communities. And I would say that gated communities represent this old way of thinking, and inter- integrative communities that value public space and encourage ways for the public to come together are reflective of this inter- integrative way of thinking. Another person in another field is a woman named Joan Roughgarden, who's an evolutionary biologist at Stanford. And she, of course, believes in Darwin's theory of evolution, but she also thinks that aspects of it are wrong, specifically his theory of sexual selection, nature, red, and tooth, and claw, which reduces gender to only two, which is the conventional belief, but says that the evidence that it is otherwise is plain to see. And she doesn't understand why scientists have not yet understood that many species have only one gender, some fish, seahorses, for example, and other species have more than two genders, uh, a breed of, of bird, for example, where it requires three in order to reproduce. And again, I would suggest that this is understanding science in an integrative rather than a binary way. Then there are writers and musicians and artists um, legal thinkers whose work, to, to my mind, reflects this new and important way of thinking. And I do believe it's important because I think that we are at a critical moment now in history, whether we are going to revert to a very binary, black, white, yes, no, you're inside this gated community or you're outside this gated community, fortress earth way of thinking about things, or we are going to understand that we live in a world of interconnection and interdependence, that all of our work needs to reflect that knowledge and understanding, and that that is going to be the most successful, from an evolutionary point of view, way for humans to move forward on this planet. That's really wonderful. Um, Let's go back to Ken Wilber for a moment, because he uh, is a, uh, let's say, leading, but also for some controversial integrative uh, or integral thinker. Um, And as you are well aware, he has this four-quadrant theory of of, uh, reality, Uh, the upper left being the, at least if one takes the social science world, the upper left being the interior experience of ourselves, the upper right, the exterior behavioral view of, uh, of the individual, the lower left being uh, we, the collective interior uh, cultural experience, and the lower right being they, in effect, or it's the exterior collective. And but this four quadrant theory can can be extended to many many other areas. That's just the social science dimension of it. But 
Wilbur has been enormously ambitious in his thinking, and uh, he thinks of his thinking as having, it, that it is suggestive of, of one architecture of the cosmos. Um, how do you evaluate Wilbur's contribution to integral thought? I think that Wilbur is a very brilliant person, and I think that he is a remarkably widely read and self-taught person. And I think that his main contribution has been that of synthesis rather than specific originality of thought. And I am dubious about there being an overarching uh, principle which would which which would accommodate everything that we know in the universe, a, a grand unified field theory of everything. Because I am very persuaded by Isaiah Berlin of the incommensurateness that exists in the world, by which he means not everything can be reconciled. I think that Ken might say, if you take anything up a level, at some level it's all reconcilable. And this is, in fact... Um, what he means as you as you reach these ever more encompassing structures of consciousness because they include what has come before and then they add something to it which creates a greater unification. But to my mind, that in itself is a very teleological view which is essentially reminiscent of this earlier polar binary structure of consciousness. So... I don't have a good answer to to what I to, to this issue that I've been thinking about, but I think it's worth thinking about. If you tentatively reject the teleological dimension of Wilbur's thought, what about his theory of uh, multiple intelligences, uh, which of course many others have shared? The sense that they're cognitive, ethical, aesthetic, spiritual, kinesthetic, affective, spatial, logical, mathematical. Uh, and other uh, lines of development uh, for any human being, and uh, that to understand consciousness, um, uh, it helps to recognize that all of us uh, may develop along those different lines, which Daniel Goleman and Howard Gardner and Carol Gilligan in different ways have all talked about, uh, that we can all find ourselves in some sense uh, at different levels along different lines of, uh, of uh, development of consciousness or intelligence? I think that that, that seems true to me. <laughs> you know, it seems true to me ever since I was a small child in mm-hmm. nursery school or kindergarten or elementary school where you see that some of your classmates excel in painting and others excel in math and others excel in, in other, uh, other kinds of tasks in the classroom. Um, that there are idiot savants, you know, I mean, that there are uh, uh, there are musical geniuses, there are scientific geniuses whose um, intelligence seems to be natural and very directed in one du- direction, and yet in other circumstances they are not quite adequate to the task. So I would say that something like that is self-evident, and I don't really see the profundity of that thought. 
In other words, that's not an area where Wilbur has made a, a, a particularly creative contribution. He has he has encompassed that from the work of others. Well, I I I think he probably has encompassed it from the work of others, but I don't think you even need the work of others because it seems self-evident to me as one navigates the planet. Mm-hmm. But he also talked. But, but that's a different thing than his exploration of what he would call levels of, of, of moral development, for example. So he, he will say that somebody could be a very skilled mathematician but has no um, deep understanding of what he might consider some kind of spiritual truth. And I think that, to use a very extreme example, you might look at somebody like Mangala, who clearly was a very brilliant scientist, but who had a, to me, utterly insufficiently developed moral sense to apply that brilliance in the way that he did. Mengele, did you say? Yeah. Who is Joseph that? Joseph Mengele. Oh, you mean the the, the, the Nazi? Yes. Uh-huh. I mean, as uh, I say, just to use a very obvious example. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Um, you're, you're, I'm just fascinated by your your examples of integrative uh, thinkers if uh, you know one of my references in in this is always wikipedia which i find such a useful way to follow the group mind and and uh when i look at the really very nice entry on integral thought in wikipedia the the thinkers they talk about one you mentioned gene gebser and we've talked about ken wilber but their other examples are Haridas Chaudhary, uh, George Feuerstein, who wrote a, a biography of Gene Gebser, Aurobindo Ghosh, uh, Irvin Laszlo, uh, George Leonard, Michael Murphy, William Irwin Thompson, uh, and then others who influenced it, uh, James Baldwin, Teilhard de Chardin, Claire Graves, Edward Haskell, Eric Jantz, Rupert Sheldrake, Francisco Varela, and Arthur Young. And what fascinates me about your list um, is it is so iconoclastic from the point of view of integral thought. Uh, you know, you talk of Berlin, of Rawls, uh, of just a whole set of people who, of Rorty, uh, of just a whole set of people who uh, are completely outside the, uh, the set that the group mind has thrown up on the, you know, cosmic uh, radar screen of, uh, of Wikipedia. Uh, has that has have you noticed that have you noticed that your reference are quite different from those uh, that are usually thought of as integral thinkers? Well, I have several responses to that. First of all, I think that the very example that you offer is evidence of the severe limitation of Wikipedia. And I can say elab- more about that. Say I, more. Well, the elaboration of that is that while I believe there is great intelligence in this group mind, which is a very popular notion right now, and the Internet is a great example of that, you are limited by the limitations of the minds themselves. And also there is very little way to verify that which is offered, unless somebody who knows otherwise or better happens to be participating in the conversation, which is not always, in fact, rarely, in my experience on the Internet, the case. In terms of all those thinkers who you have mentioned, I have read all of them. I'm aware of all of them. And I would say that Laszlo, in some ways, is the most inconsistent with the rest in terms of, you know, uh, which one doesn't belong. He does belong because he's a, he's a systems thinker in 
the way it, it's interesting they didn't put Kuhn in there, Thomas Kuhn, right. um, because Lazo was a scientist. But otherwise, that that little knot of people are brilliant people to be sure. Many of them with deep spiritual practices, but very um, it, it, it's it's very insular and not especially useful or interesting to me. Because what's more interesting is that if integral thinking is really happening, then we are seeing it way beyond anybody who offers a theory of it by people who wouldn't name what they're doing integral thinking or integral practice. I find Laszlo a particularly fascinating figure. I once read his book, Science in the Akashic Field, an Integral Theory of Everything, uh, and in which he talks about uh, uh, the Akashic field as a field of information that is, is sort of substantively completely connected to the cosmos itself. Um, what do you think of Laszlo? Have you read uh, Science in the Akashic Field? Has he influenced your thinking at all? I haven't. I haven't read that, although I would like to, as mm-hmm. you mention it. Mm-hmm. And and I, when I did read him, it was many years ago, mm-hmm. so he isn't fresh in my mind. But mm-hmm. I think that um, when somebody like Laszlo, who who was is taken seriously as a scientist, also steps into a world that tries to bring things together in a larger and significant way that goes beyond science per se, that it's something to take very seriously. Unless, of course, you've got the same problem that we were talking about earlier, which is very brilliant in science, but completely not brilliant in other ways. But I don't think that that's the case with him. I think he was a very brilliant person. I'd like to turn to one of your current interest, which is your interest in the commons as a metaphor for work on uh, consciousness and the work of the Tomales Bay Institute, I went to uh, its website and found an extraordinarily rich conversation going on uh, there. And uh, I just want to ask you, uh, uh, what is the work of the commons for you, uh, and how does it fit into your sense of uh, creative direction for the culture. I think that the commons is an expression of this integral way of thinking that is uh, it's a it's a it can be an economic an expression in economics an expression in politics uh, it, it, it but it but it is only an expression of this uh, of this larger more comprehensive structure of consciousness that I'm speaking of I have found it particularly important and interesting because it is very much concerned with the body politic and this and the natural world I come back to what I'd spoken about earlier how are we going to make this planet a place that is equitable and and rich for every body who inhabits the place now and in the future and that's what the commons conversation is specifically concerned with. Tell us a little about the Tomales Bay Institute. Who founded it? Well, it's a very, um, it, it, it's not entirely virtual, but it has aspects of being a, a virtual think tank. It was started by uh, Harriet Barlow, who, among other things, is the director of the HKH Foundation and uh, the founder of the Blue Mountain Center, which is an extraordinary artist colony uh, in the Adirondacks, 
and Peter Barnes, who is an economist, uh, David Bollier, who has done a lot of thinking about commons issues, especially with regard to copyright matters, uh, John Rowe, who is a, a writer and specifically has thought about political uh, issues, and it's coordinated by a wonderful woman named Julie Ristow, who's done a lot of grassroots organizing, who lives in Minneapolis. I, too, am part of it. And it's an ever-growing group of people that are interested in the issues that we have been talking about today and thinking about how to proliferate the idea of the commons, the, the meme, so to speak, in, in the culture so that it begins to characterize societies across the planet in whatever way is appropriate. These are the commons... The notion of the commons is a very place-rooted thing in terms of natural resources or in terms of politics. So it considers very much um, what is appropriate in the community concerned. And, and, but it also considers, and this again is this example of integral thinking, um, that that community that, of concern is both important in a specific way, in a fundamental way, again to use some of Ken Wilbur's language, but it also is significant in a larger context, that is to say, in the way that it is related to other places across the planet, whether it is uh, a migratory, along a migratory route, whether there's shared culture, whether it is a place where there is child labor, and yet here I am buying clothing that has been made by those enslaved children in San Francisco, California. So it's, it, is, it considers very much the importance of place, and it considers very much the importance of place in context. It's a wonderful website, onthecommons.org, and under key concepts, one finds entries like common assets, which are the, those parts of the commons that have a value in the market uh, uh, and which are appropriate to buy and sell, like radio waves uh, or timber or minerals. Um, and by recognizing certain resources as common, as common assets, it's easier to ask, are the common assets being responsibly managed? Uh, uh, on behalf of the general public or uh, given to a distinct community of interest. And then there's the wonderful concept of copyleft, which I've never heard before, which is a license that allows free reuse and modification of creative work so long as the derivative work remains available on the same terms. It's known also in law as the general public license. Uh, then, obviously, a corporation is a self-perpetuating legal entity uh, with the mission of maximizing short-term return to shareholders, which can be bad for the commons, and the gift economy, uh, and so on. Uh, so it sounds as if together you've been defining a set of uh, legal and philosophical terms that are essential to a real conversation about the commons of nature, the commons of creativity and knowledge, the hometown commons, and so forth. That's right. And the On the Commons, which is edited uh, by David Bollier, um, is a very comprehensive site. You have made reference to, the, to copyleft, the whole copyright issue. Uh, much thinking has been done on that by many people, but especially by Lawrence Lessig. So to go to the ideas, I would go to Lawrence Lessig. For an example of how it's actually working in the world, 
you could take a look at uh, Peter Barnes's new book called Capitalism 3.0, which he's published as a conventional book, and you can buy it in your neighborhood bookstore or on Amazon. You can also download it for free on the in- off the internet with certain rules of usage. Uh, Jonathan Lethem, who is a novelist and songwriter, among other things, has just written a novel. He's written several novels. His most recent novel is also available to download free on the Internet, and he's making it available to anybody who is interested in making a screenplay out of it. And, you know, uh, sort of financial concerns to be negotiated subsequently if, in fact, it ever becomes a movie. He also has made lyrics to songs available to be downloaded for free for performers to uh, interpret as they choose. So Lessig deals with the theoretical aspects of things, and yet there are very interesting, concrete examples of how copyleft is being used in the world right now. And this, I think, uh, characterizes how I think about things. In fact, speaking of Ken Wilber, it's something that he had said about the work that I do, and maybe it reflects your uh, point about how I had a different group of people that I, I cited as integral thinkers than when it was on Wikipedia, which is that I'm always trying to go back and forth between praxis and practice, finding examples of people who are the theoreticians, because it's so interesting to me to read all of that, but also trying to understand how that theory operates in the world. I'd like to turn now to some of your work on technology. Uh, As I mentioned, you were the co-editor of Living with the Genie, Technology and the Quest for Human Mastery, and I attended the really extraordinary gathering that you created at Columbia University some years ago that was a forerunner of the book. You also served as the director of the Funders Working Group on New Technologies and were involved with thinking about, as you do, biotechnology, nanotechnology, robotics as they affect nature and human health. Uh, Where do you find yourself now in Uh, as you look at the continuing explosion of new technologies and as you look at what you have learned from both the direct action work of uh, directing the funders' working group on new technologies and the uh, intellectual uh, work of uh, the conference and uh, your book on Living with the Genie. The Funders Working Group began originally as a group of funders who wanted to learn more about agricultural biotech, uh, which is, uh, although a big subject, fairly narrow in terms of what it's getting at, which has to do with um, genetic engineering of seeds and plants. And that is incredibly important and interesting. But we soon realized that the that many of the problems posed by agricultural uh, genetic technologies needed to be looked at at a higher level in terms of governance issues. Who decides? Who benefits? How is there equitable distribution? How is it paid for? And that those questions were relevant to all of the emerging technologies. And they still are. So to me, It's largely a question of governance issues and, of course, environmental consequences that need to be very seriously considered. And I'm afraid that they are not being very seriously considered from a public policy perspective. 
And frankly, I don't think that the foundation world has really understood the importance of these issues either. I think finally it's kind of coming back around and the foundation world, whose role in part is to be funding think tanks and activist groups to be putting forth uh, the policy issues because the government and corporations tend not to be doing that in order to engage in a real conversation about these things. There are some people, like Bill Joy, that's one of the founders of Sun Microsystem, who would actually enclose and put in a black box a certain kind of uh, science and knowledge and technologies because they are too threatening to the human species. I don't share that view myself. As threatening as something may be, I believe very strongly in in knowledge and the proliferation of knowledge. I believe that we need to be skillful about how we use the things that we know and de- deploy those things that we can do. In the you know, classic sense, just because we can doesn't mean we should. You mentioned Bill Joy, whose thinking was very influential for me. His essay, to which you refer in Wired magazine, The Future Does Not Need Us, talked about the movement from an age of weapons of mass destruction uh, to an age of technologies of mass destruction. And the difference was that the weapons of mass destruction, the nuclear and other weapons, required a large industrial base to create them, whereas the technologies of mass destruction, which included biotechnology, nanotechnology, and robotics, could create entities, certainly already created in biotechnology uh, uh, now and perhaps nanotechnology soon, that once released into the environment could multiply out of control forever and uh, therefore be even more destructive than the weapons of uh, mass destruction. And the further point he made was that uh, these technologies of mass destruction did not require a large industrial base, that they were almost pure information. They could be cooked up in somebody's garage and posted on the Internet uh, so that others could make them. Uh, And so the threat, to me, uh, seemed extraordinary. And so I guess I wonder... Uh, I like your idea that you don't want to enclose them in a black box, but how do you deal with the uh, existential threat of technologies of mass destruction, which we are already seeing in use and being deployed by biotechnology companies around the world? Well, this is one of the great challenges of our time, and it's an essential one if the human race is going to continue. But I don't think that making something illegal is going to have any effect on whether people cook up stuff in their garages. Also, a lot of the, a lot of the um, uh, understanding of how to how to make these potentially very dangerous things has to do with the way that knowledge is put together, not with discrete pieces of knowledge per se. So as long as there is information out in the world, which doesn't in and of itself have a a deeply negative consequence, um, we never know how people are going to put things together. I mean, that is is a creative process, for better or for worse. But it is a serious, serious conundrum that characterizes the times in which we live, and it's, it's It is quite frightening, but it is also why governments and corporations, as well as NGOs, at least need to be getting together to think about global policies on these matters. And what renegades do in the face of that, what what rogue uh, scientists, rogue you know garage inventors do, um, is something that 
is not acceptable in a global system, and we need to figure out a way to deal with people who transgress. But I don't think you can prevent them from the transgression at the outset. Well, perhaps in another conversation you can tell me what your solution to that is. <laughs> I'll, I'll work on it. <laughs> I want to turn, finally, to your work in politics. You co-founded, as I mentioned, in 2003, Women's Voices, Women Vote. Um, what did you... What was that, and what did you learn from that? And where do you see the politics of uh, women uh, in the American polity today? Well, to begin with the last question that you asked with regard to women's voices, women's voices was not first and foremost about women. And the fact that some people thought it was was actually a problem. I encouraged people to think not of single women, but to think of little green men, because what was significant about this cohort, single women, who could have been little green men, is that they are the most consistently progressive group of people in the United States who are underrepresented in the electorate. And if they were registered to vote and encouraged to vote, that they would most likely vote in a progressive way. And, in fact, that proved to be true with the work that we did and, and that continues uh, to this day. So who did you create that with, and what did you do? Um, I created it with a woman named Paige Gardner, who's based in D.C. We've known each other for many, many years, done a lot of uh, work in political campaigns together. And we knew that single women were progressive sort of anecdotally. This was a very rigorous and technical project. So to prove that point, we did an enormous amount of research, uh, both in terms of focus groups and polling, using all of the current tools of the trade. What we found out um, uh, proved our point, so that the next step was to think about how are we going to engage these women. So once again, very rigorous uh, testing and um, uh, modeling to figure out the best ways to reach these women and the best ways to motivate them then to register and the best ways to motivate them to vote. And it was a combination of um, mail and phone campaigns, um, just these sort of annoying phone calls that we all get at the, at the dinner hour. Um, and yet, uh, while I find them extremely distasteful, it turned out that these women do not. In the same way I don't want another piece of direct mail, these women were interested in receiving direct mail. It was how they uh, received information. Uh, they, we discovered that they weren't much online, which is now everybody touts as the as the the uh, way to be organized, doing political organizing. Um, but for these women, at this point anyway, it's not a very effective way of reaching them. We developed lists of these women based on our research. We continued to refine the lists through uh, phoning tests and mail tests, and as I say, this modeling. So by the end of, or near the end of the last presidential campaign, we had excellent, excellent lists that were with with phone numbers and addresses that were used by groups that were seeking to get out the vote. And in fact, these went, we increased the percentage of these women in the electorate by around three percent, which is which was the ling, single largest gain of any single group and is a significant one, and they voted as progressives about 70, at, at about 70%, which was also significant. And you say that work continues now? 
It does, yes. The Women's Voices Women's Book still exists, and although I'm not involved in a day-to-day basis, I am still involved with the project, and Paige Gardner continues to carry it forward. Chris, there are many parts of your life that we have not touched on, the rich experience of being involved with so many boards of Rockwood Leadership Program, Patagonia, Mother Jones Magazine, and Rainforest Action Network. But rather than trying to squeeze that conversation into the end of the hour, I just want to come back to the the, the larger picture of uh, the life that you've been composing, uh, your long engagement with contemplative practice, uh, the various pieces that we've talked about. Is there anything you'd like to add or say that we haven't talked about that uh, feels like something that should be in the room with us? I think that we've covered a broad range of of questions and subjects, which is of great interest to me to discuss both in terms of my own engagement, but also in terms of the uh, conversation that helps me to learn more. And I guess that the uh, one other thing that I might say is that for I, I find that the way that I learn things in the world is a dialectical way, and the way that my expression is the richest is dialectical. And by that I mean through a conversation like this, with you that helps me think about things perhaps a little differently than I had before or engaging um, almost in a dialogue with anything that I happen to be reading. Uh, If an author is still alive, it might be even more interesting because I may be able to have a conversation with that person. But I think we live in in, in a very rich and fascinating time, and there are many, many minds to be engaged with right now, whether it is through writing or music or reading or art, and um, uh, that just seemed important to me to say. I don't know exactly where to go with that, except to say that a conversation like this is about the most meaningful way that I can spend my time. So I appreciate very much the opportunity to do that with you. Well, thank you, Chris, and I hope we will have further conversations in the new school with you, and I hope you will help us co-invent the new school. I continue to have the experience with you, which I had from the first time I met you, that you are usually two or three years ahead of the the culture and the things that you're thinking about. And very often I will find that uh, that things that engaged you, let's just take the uh, insight meditation and uh, for social activists, but there are many other examples, things that engaged you uh, uh, that I learned about in part from you, uh, then came into my life and into the life of others in a, in a very powerful way over the following years. So I hope that uh, we will continue these conversations and that you'll help us co-create the new school and think about what integral experience and integral thinking is for the community of people that um, come together through the new school and through uh, your work with the Tomales Bay Institute and all the other uh, acupuncture points around the world with, uh, with which we are collaborating. So thank you very much for being with us. 
Thank you. Hi, folks. Who's there? Greetings. Greetings. Albert, you're with us. Yes. Molly Jones. Molly Jones. Albert Wells. Who else is with us? Well, great. We <laughs> we 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 brave few, but but wonderful few. Albert, uh, you're a reflective man. You've listened to this for an hour. What are your thoughts? Well, I I found it absolutely fascinating, um, and uh, obviously I have a whole much grander uh, view of Chris, who I haven't seen for a long, long time. But it's <laughs> lovely to know, and also to learn about you know a little bit about the virtual tamales, uh, which sounds also very, very interesting. I think, you know, for me personal, just for me as an individual, uh, uh, you know, I wrote down my note about Mr. Goldstein, whose first name is what? Joseph. Joseph, okay. Chris, are you here? Yes, I am. Okay, good, yeah. Anyway, I, I he has he has, se- he has several books, if you don't have the opportunity to encounter him personally, and he also uh, teaches meditation practice uh, from time to time here at Spirit Rock, uh-huh. and also on the East Coast at Insight Meditations. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and I, Chris, I want to say that I really enjoyed, loved uh, the positive note upon which you ended the conversation, uh, given the threats we all face. Um, I Michael gave me uh, the Presence book by the four authors, which I'm sure you know about. Um, you know that book, Chris? I'm, I'm not Peter sure Senge. You... Peter Senge oh, and yes. the people from the Society for Organizational Learning at MIT. Yes, I know the book, although I haven't read it. It's Boy, very, read it. Read it. It's remarkable. Uh, I say that because uh, I'm one of those who thinks he's pretty awake to the realities um, and who uh, finds himself, uh, you know, in a pretty dreary state of affairs psychologically reasonably often these days. And I found this book, thanks to Michael, who insisted that I read it. Thank goodness he did. Uh, you know, also full of hope. Um, and, you know, I just believe fundamentally that what you two have been talking about for the last hour as to how people can keep themselves in some kind of balance uh, is uh, truly a, a huge need we have going going forward, uh, we being society. Um, and I find it fascinating to think that, you know, as some folks like the authors of presence, uh, I like to call it pre-sense, <laughs> um, you know, see something very big happening. Uh, the way David Corton thinks in his uh, uh, The Great Turning book thinks he sees something happening. His is, in my opinion, much less sophisticated than the pre-sense group, but nonetheless they feed off each other. Um, so... Thank you for a powerful conversation. I should have been taking more notes. Is the book The Fifth Discipline, is that the one you're talking about? Or is it no, it's called Presence. Presence, okay. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay, because I'm, yeah. I'm ordering it as we speak. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Good. Um, thank you, Albert, very yeah. much. Um, uh, Chris, any 
reflections on Albert's comments? Um, I, I, I'm happy, very happy and grateful to hear them. I understand and uh, resonate and commiserate with that despairing and depressing place because I find myself there a lot. But here we are, you know. What are we going to do? Right. Molly, what yeah. are your thoughts as you listen? Well, I did, of course, find it all very interesting, and I've read very few of the people that you talked about, but I've you know, heard about them and heard of their thinking. I guess I would like to know from Chris, just because it's kind of next in line for my work, is um, I worked with Deborah Garcia making the film called The Future of Food, mm-hmm. and we the next film um, will be about soil and fertility. Mm. Wow. Well, um, I just, you know, I think when you talked about governance being so important, that was important to me to recognize that all we can know about soil and fertility, it, a lot of it will come around to governance. But anyway, do you have any anything you can tell me about your understanding? Of uh, soil and fertility or governance? I'm, I'm sure that you are uh, going to be talking to Wes Jackson about this. He's somebody who has an enormous to offer on uh, the subject of, of the importance of soil and right. fertility and the Land Institute. Uh, I, I I don't have a lot, uh, I mean, I don't think I have a lot to offer. I do think that if you are not familiar with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and David Morris's work. Who is it? David Morris, M-O-R-R-I-S. Okay, I don't know that name. And it's called the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Very good. And David concerns himself very specifically with governance issues. Good. And, and it, again, it understands the importance of rooting things very locally, but then understanding that governance is relevant to scale. Right. And that different kinds of uh, rules and regulations need to adhere depending on the scale of the problem. And I don't think we have a very subtle understanding of that in this country. Uh, Can I know. add one quick thing to that, Chris? Yeah. <clears throat> Um, when Jerry Brown was in his first term as governor, uh, he decided, or others gave him the, the idea, that we, we should really learn about what Chris was just talking about, the scale of food production and uh, purity, if you will. So somewhere in Sacramento and in other libraries, there are seven huge volumes put out by architects in Los Angeles and progressive ranchers all over the place and pesticide people and on and on. And it was called, it is called, the Small, Small Farm Viability Project. Mm. Uh, and it, it is a, an awesome piece of work. If all of you on the phone know who Sim Vanderen is, mm-hmm. Sim had a big role in it. Oh, even though okay. his world is architecture. But, right. of course, this was architecture. It was architecture of building farms that are, that are viable in the 21st century kind of a thing. Anyway, I, you know, if you're going to work on, on that 
part of this of this big issue. Uh, I think diving into the small farm viability project uh, by you know looking at various chapters and looking for stuff that would be useful to you is something worth your while. Thank you.